In December of 2011, Patrick McGoldrick was diagnosed with ALS. Just over one year later, Patrick went to be with Jesus. During his life, and explicitly in his final year of his life, Patrick demonstrated what it looked like to trust God with everything. When he was unable to walk or even speak, he still trusted God. He still praised God. The video clip that you just saw was the last sermon that Patrick preached at his church. His parting challenge to his faith family was that very question, who do you trust? We recognize this morning that life is all about choices. It is about the choice between man's ways and God's ways. And we desperately, all of us, are in need of wisdom. So this morning, I want to pose the same question to you of who do you trust? Who do you rely on? Who do you depend on? I actually invite you to answer that question. That wasn't a question not for you to answer. That's not hypothetical. Truly, in your mind right now, answer the question. And let me just encourage you. There's no sense in making up an answer today. It's between you and the Lord right now. It doesn't matter what you say in the sense of, it doesn't matter if you say what, what I think you should say or what uh, you're, uh, someone near you thinks that you should say or, or what you maybe think you might want to say, but, but truly, who are you actually depending on? Who you're actually trusting in? That is actually an objective question that, that can have an answer. We can know that. You can know that this morning. Throughout the pages of Scripture and throughout all of human history, God, time and time again, is teaching us about trust. He's teaching us to trust. As you read through your Bible, we don't get very far when we read about Adam and Eve. And the invitation that they are given to trust God that he is good. And that he's not keeping anything from them. A little bit later, we see an interaction between God and Cain. And Cain is invited to trust that God is just. That God isn't somehow just arbitrarily hurting or punishing. We keep reading in Genesis and we come to to Abraham. And we see that Abraham is invited to trust God's covenant. God's promises. And instead of trusting God, we find out that Abraham wanted to play God. When Sarah heard about the covenant, she was, she was invited to trust God's word that was spoken to her, not what her own body might tell her. Moses was invited to trust in God's powers, not his inabilities perceived. Esther was invited to trust God to deliver her when all the odds were stacked against her. Jonah was invited to trust God's sense of justice and that it was more developed than his. We look into the New Testament, we see even the rich young ruler was invited to trust God, that he was better. He was more than riches. So whether it's those things or whether it's for you and you and me trusting God every day, whether it's for you and me to trust God with our our daily bread or to trust God for the needs of our our family 
or to trust God with the conflicts that we have in our relationships or our concerns for our own health or worries about our finances or the depth of our sorrows and our grief. Maybe we should be trusting God with the problems of our country, trusting trusting God for our personal protections, trusting God for the future of our church, trusting God with all of our anxieties. The psalmist declares in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. As we come to Proverbs chapter 3, we find here what Ray Ortland calls an education in life at its best. Love that. You want to know what the best life looks like? Stop reading Joel Olstein. Okay? That's not the best life. Read your Bible. And here, Solomon, through the inspiration of God, details for us what the best life looks like. And he gives us this, this picture of this instruction, this counsel combined with the incentive. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. It's all about uh, how, how we live this life God has called us to. And from the whole of Scripture, we know that Jesus actually is wisdom incarnate. So if you want wisdom, you have to have Jesus. Jesus is wisdom acted. You want it, you got to come through him. Colossians 2, 3 says, In whom, this is talking about Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to know what you ought to do? You want to know the next steps in your life? you got to seek Jesus. It's really that simple. Proverbs chapter 3 is about how we act wisely. In this portion of the text, how we act wisely toward God. Solomon begins, as he does several places in Proverbs, with my son. His introduction into the text is my son. This is a a, a paternal or a fatherly appeal that Solomon is writing again to his son. He's already done this twice. This is his third time doing so. And he um, he does it seven more times in the first eight chapters. For today... As we read this, we read this as God's beloved children. You're not Solomon's son. (laughs) You're better than that. You're better than that. You're you're, you're the son of the true and better Solomon. The son of, of God. The children of God. The beloved children who have been chosen and adopted. God chose you. He chose you. He wanted you. There's beauty in that. And so as we read these words, read it as a father speaking to their child. In verses 1 through 12, we can see this. um, There's an order to this where there are six two-verse couplets. Now that might sound weird to you, but if you looked at all the odd verses, you would see that there is, is counsel or instruction or commands. And then the even verses are followed with an incentive or an outcome. So just look at verse one. My son, do not forget your teaching, but let my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For, here's the incentive, for length of days and years of life and peace will be added to you. And he does that all the way down, all the way through verse 12. Now, as you read this, you might hear length of days, years of life. 
Uh, go a little bit further, find good, good success in sight of man. He'll direct your ways, uh, refreshment to your bones, healing for your flesh. And this might start to sound like, man, this sounds like kind of what might be called the prosperity gospel. Like if I do good things for God, God will do good things for me. Right? I'll, do, I'll do good and God will do good. And there are some Christians who believe that. They believe that if they do good, they'll get good. There's only one problem with that. That's absolutely not true. That's absolutely not true on several levels. And you only have to look at Jesus' life to know that that cannot be true. Jesus lived perfectly and he was murdered. The prosperity gospel is a perverted gospel. This is not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel does not exist in the Bible. The prosperity gospel is a, a perversion made up to, to suit our materialism, to get what we want, to bend God and his word to try to get what we want. That's not what the Bible is doing. The Bible is not about giving us what we want, about giving us things. The Bible is about giving us God, who is far greater than anything. If you're living your life to get things from God, you're missing the point of the Christian life. That's not what it is. It's not get through this life unscathed. It's not get through this life as healthy as possible or as happy as possible or prosperous as possible. That's not the point. The point is the glory of God. The point is that you are here for a purpose. It is, it's above you. It's more than you. And unless and until you realize that you are made for God and by God, your life will not make sense. You'll be roaming around life trying to collect, trying to collect, and you'll be vain. Proverbs 3 is showing us what real life looks like, what the best life looks like. And the point of it is, is obedience to God. That's the point. The incentives are not, I obey so I get good from God. The point is that, that we love God and God blesses our obedience. That's the point. The motivation isn't in the thing. The motivation is in the person. God certainly does bless you don't have to live very long to realize that there are sorrows in this life. It's not because you're a bad person. God doesn't hate you. You have trouble in your life? Doesn't mean God hates you. It means you're, you're part of the human existence. That's what it means. Sometimes we, we see the, the, the problems in this world. We say, the devil's doing this and the devil's doing that. Listen, friend, there's not a thing that comes into your life that didn't go through the hand of God. Now, that sounds really good from this, from right here, doesn't it? But when you sit there and you say, what about tragedy? What about sorrow? How do you explain that? I can't explain all of that. But here's what I can explain. If you're suggesting that there's something coming into my life that God can't do anything about, that's a God problem now. That is not what the pages of Scripture tell me. He tells, Bob tells me that he is sovereign over all things. The book of Job indicates to us that not a thing comes to you without going through the hand of God. God wants you to live a good life. He wants to bless you, but that is not the kind of blessing. The kind of blessing that we think here in America is not the kind of blessing that we're talking about here. In verses 1 through 4, we learn that God's truth... We, we see that, that, that we can learn God's truth through God's word. Solomon is saying, don't forget my teaching. And this, this don't forget is a, a willful forgetting. 
This isn't like a lapse of, of memory. This is intentionally putting it out. It's intentionally, oh, I forgot. This is your kid forgetting to do their chores, right? The, the willfulness. That's not what, what he's saying here. He's saying, don't forget. Don't, don't, don't. That is what he's saying here. Excuse me. It, it's not, it is a willfulness. Don't forget the teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. What does he mean when he says heart? Why heart? Because all obedience, all acceptable obedience begins at the heart. That's why just a chapter later, Solomon, uh, Solomon says, Chapter 4, verse 23. Guard your heart, for out of it springs the issues of life. The heart is absolutely necessary to be engaged in order to follow God, in order to learn from God, in order to do what God is calling us to do. The reward or, or the, the incentive here of the hearty obedience is a long life and peace. Now, just a, a simple reading of that. You say, how can that be? We, we've known many good people, many godly people who've not lived long lives. What, what is he saying? On the whole, on the whole, this is partial. You know this, this life is partial. We have an eye towards a far greater life than this, a far longer life than this. What does it mean? It means those who, who know God, there's a life coming, a long life to come. This is but a moment, this earthly life. And the peace the peace, where, where else do you get peace? If you find peace in anything other than Jesus, you have an idol. If you go to any other source to give you peace, to calm you down, or to help you through, that's an idol. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace comes from Jesus. Verse 3 Let not steadfast and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. This steadfast love, this faithfulness, <clears throat> this is the description of God himself. That's what God is. God is steadfast love. He's covenant love. It's love that he is choosing to love you. This describes him. Let not that love, let not that faithfulness, don't, don't forsake that, but bind it. Wear it like a necklace around your neck. That everyone would see that that people would see where your confidence actually is. And when people see who God is in us, we're told we'll find favor with God and man, verse 4. Verses 5 through 8 go on to tell us more about how this peace comes that we've read about. From these verses, we want to ask two questions. We're going to ask one this morning and one next week. The first one is, what is trust? See that in verse 5 and 6. And secondly, we want to ask, how do we trust? Verses 7 and 8 next week. But first, what is trust? Let's read verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Let's start with a bit of a definition of trust. Trust is related to faith meaning a reliance on God who is himself trustworthy. So when the writer is talking about trust, he's talking about reliance. 
another commentator, it means to throw oneself um, down on its face, lie spread eagle in complete reliance. It is full weighted certainty. You know how you can sit in a chair and you don't put all the weight in it? You know how that is? You're like, oh, I'm not sure about this. You're sitting there, but you're not putting all your weight down. This is full weighted. This is lying helpless face down. This is all in. This is all in me. Complete dependence, complete commitment. And why would we trust like this? Because of the objects. And who is the object? In the Lord. The context here, we are speaking of not just trust in general. We are speaking about trust in someone. Trust in or reliance on the Lord. The object is what makes the difference here. For instance, if anyone in this room ever in your life had car trouble and you were looking for someone to call, to to trust them to help you, and you called me, that would be ill-placed trust. Okay? This is an example of what not to do. The object of your trust is sadly quite, quite wrong. And you will be sadly disappointed in my ability to help you with your car. Okay? If you're trusting me to help you with mechanics, you're in a bad place, quite frankly. Your faith has the wrong object. It's the wrong object. And here, Psalm is saying there is an object that is worthy of your complete dependence in everything, and it's the Lord. Why? Why is that true? It's because of who the Lord is. Now, if you don't know the Lord, that's a problem, but let me tell you a little bit about this Lord this morning. This Lord, this word, Yahweh, or Jehovah. The, the, the Lord is the one true God. That's who we're talking about here. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He is the God who is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. He is the God who is sovereign over all things in this life and the next. He is self-existent, which means he doesn't need anybody's help to exist. Nobody's helping him exist. He is eternal. He's been here and he will be here. He is self-sufficient. He continues without any help from you or me. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Every good and perfect gift. And that's not just to you, Christian. That's to you, non-Christian. Every gift that you've been given is a grace. Now, if you identify it as so, that's something different, but it's still true. Everything that comes good in our life is from the hand of God. He is, Genesis 22, Jehovah Jireh. He is the provider. As he was for Abraham and Isaac, so he is for you and me. He is inerrant. He has no mistake. He has no no problems. And he is a million other things that we could take time today to say. But what we find is even in a short list like that, what we find is that we are none of those things. All those things are exclusively his. That's the one who you're putting your trust in. You're called to put your trust in. The question is, where actually is your trust? And let's be clear about something else. It's not the size of your faith or the size of your trust that makes the difference. Rather, it is the object. 
A small amount of faith in the right thing is better than a whole lot of faith in the wrong thing. Where is your trust this morning? Who are you trusting in? Proverbs 3, 5 calls us to trust in the Lord. He goes on, our writer goes on to describe what this trust in the Lord looks like. He gives us an explanation of the trust in verses 5 and 6. First, we are to trust the Lord entirely. We see this in verse 5 when he says, with all your heart. With all your heart as opposed to half your heart. As opposed to a, a divided trust. As opposed to a little bit here, one foot in, one foot out. Psalm chapter 119 verse 13 says, I hate the double minded, but I love your law. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The scriptures elsewhere speak of, of this whole heart, this all heart. Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart. As we look through scripture, we see this, right? We can go back to the book of Daniel for a familiar example. Daniel's three friends who are, are standing before the king and are called to bow down to this image of him. And if they don't, there's a consequence. In that moment, they chose to trust God with all their heart, full trust, entirely trusting, even to their very very death. It was not just trusting God in word, it was trusting God in all things. Full-hearted obedience. The Apostle Paul trusted God with his full heart too. He even went so far to say that that I'm not trusting anything in my flesh. And he had something to, to kind of be proud about. If you remember the Apostle Paul, he had a pretty good uh, heritage. He had a pretty good uh, resume of religious things that he could look at and say, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Look at me. And that's not what he says. In, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I put no confidence in that, in my Jewishness. But rather, I count it all for loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Secondly, we see that we are to trust God exclusively exclusively lean not on your own understanding. This means not to rely on your own way. The prophet Isaiah says his ways are not our ways. You ever had that experience where, where your, your way isn't God's way. Trusting God by not leaning on our own understanding is saying God, it's your way, not my way. Proverbs 14 tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that is destruction. The implication is, look to God. But did you know that you can make cloudy that which God has made clear by leaning on your own understanding? This doesn't mean that we don't still need to seek God. It certainly does. But what it does mean is that when God gives an answer... We obey it. We follow it. We don't need to ask a million questions about it. We we just see what God is doing and we follow him. 
Several years ago, I, I had this experience in my life. My, my then uh, fiance, uh, actually a girlfriend at that time, we're talking. It's Amanda, right? Not, not a different person other than those two. All of those are the same person. All right. <clears throat> we were talking and uh, we were trying to discern uh, next steps for, for our life. And we started to have this conversation. And while we're having this conversation, there's this realization that I am making excuses for what has been made clear. I am making cloudy what God has already made clear. And you know what? We, in that conversation, we referenced the example of Moses. Moses did the exact same thing. God told him something, and he wanted to, to not make it clear. He wanted to make it cloudy. He kept asking more and more questions, kept searching, thinking maybe, well, maybe this, maybe that. But God had already made it clear. Don't ask questions when God has made it clear. My doubts about the decision, my fear led me not to trust, not to lean into God. It made me try to make sense for myself. How, how, how can I? What, what does this? But fear was only the presenting problem. It wasn't actually fear. There's something underneath fear. Underneath your fear, there is a motive. There is a reason why we're afraid. I want to suggest to you that there are two reasons at least, why someone leans on their own understanding. Ignorance and arrogance. Ignorance and arrogance. Ignorance doesn't identify that God is even at work. They're, they're oblivious to it. They, 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 don't, they don't give them any, even a second thought that God is actually in this. They, they don't look to him. This is not the case for a believer. Okay? You, you can't claim arrogance if you're a believer. If you say you know God, then, then ignorance doesn't work. The second one is where most of us live, and it's arrogance. Arrogance says, I know better. I can figure it out. I, I have ideas. I have plans. I'm going to look to myself for the answers. Now, some of you might be arguing with me right now in your mind, saying, what? That's not, that's not that. That's not, that's not arrogance when I'm... No, no, no. The pride in your heart says what God has said. I don't like that. So I'm going to do something else. That's pride. Now, you might not like to call it pride. But whenever you say, I know something more than you, when you say it to God, that's pride. That's what it is. And so when I was afraid of the decision that I was making, what I was actually saying to God is, God, I think I actually know more about this than you. I don't think I like the way you're doing this. I don't think that's what, 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 it, what it is. I don't want it to be that. That's pride. I think it's the primary reason Christians struggle to walk by faith. It's because we, we don't want to do it the way God wants us to do it. We, we want to have it our way. We want heaven in the future, and we want our life now. There's no bargaining here. That's not how the Christian life works. You don't get to say to God, okay, so I'll take heaven, but I'll keep my life. I'll, I'll keep my uh, habits and sin, but I'll take the eternity thing. Please, check. No, no, no. That's, that's the Christian ruler. That's what, that was his problem. God said, all of it or none of it? He said, none of it. He was more content to live his life now 
than live with Jesus later. Neither of these options are acceptable. Jeremiah 17.5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So let me ask you, how are you today leaning on your own understanding? The writer is calling us away from, from seeing and understanding life through our perspective. And instead, he's inviting us to see that God is worthy of our trust. We can look at examples of this leaning on our own understanding through the pages of Scripture. For time, we'll give you one. Joshua, in Joshua chapter 7, he uh, comes up against Ai, and uh, he decides... Yeah, I think we can just go ahead and take them. I don't think we need any to consider this at all. We're just going to go wipe them out real quick and be right back. And they went and they didn't wipe them out. In fact, they got wiped out. They got defeated quite badly because they did not seek the Lord at all. His understanding was we are more powerful than them. Therefore, we will do this. No inclusion of what God might want for them. And we see the consequence of it. Let's move on. Thirdly, we see that we are to trust God extensively. In all your ways, acknowledge him. All. All your ways. The small ones, the great ones, the personal ones, the relational ones, the earthly ones, the eternal ones. All of them. There's not a way in which we should live or go that we don't acknowledge God. Now, what does it mean to acknowledge God? It means to know God intimately. This is more than merely recognizing God or saying, I see you over there. It's a reorientation of our life. If God is who he says he is, then how does that actually change my life? How does it change my ways? How does it change what I do? Charles Bridges says, no, consider no circumstance too clear to need his direction. No circumstance too clear to need his direction. We do need it. And when he gives it, we need to obey it. So the question for you is, in what ways are you not acknowledging God? In what areas of your life have you resisted reorienting your life based on God's truth? Move on to verse 6, the incentive. The incentive in verse 6 is that he will make straight your paths. Remember, we had counsel in the first part and in, uh, incentive in the second part. These incentives are to express that obedience to God is the best life. Remember, the blessings are found in God. These incentives are not about material benefits, but the blessing of God, the, the outcome of our obedience. Verse 6 tells us that God will make straight the paths of those who trust in him. Some of your Bibles might say to direct your paths. All of this means that, that there will be a progress toward a goal. When you think of this incentive, we're, we're simply saying this. God blesses those who trust him. God directs those who trust him. If you feel like you're wandering, you feel like you don't know what you're doing, the question for you today is, who are you trusting? Are you actually going to God in dependence? Are you actually going to God entirely? Are you actually going to God acknowledging him? Are you actually going to God and not to yourself? 
Who are you leading on today? If you are trusting God today, you are in the exact right place to get the answers that you need. That's where you get the answers. You get the answers in God, in his word, in his presence. He there, there in that place, he is making your path straight. Now there are times, there are times when it is not immediate. And at that point, I want to invite you to pray the prayer that Jehoshaphat prays in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. When he prays this, Oh God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It's a great prayer. That's a prayer that God is honored by. Prayer is an act of faith. That prayer is an act of faith. By going to God, we are leaning in on him. We are acknowledging him. So as I asked you at the beginning, I asked you again, who do you trust? Undoubtedly, many of you, when I asked that question, said the Lord. Now, we, we do all recognize, most of us are adults in here, that what we say and what we do can be altogether different. So some of us might say such things, but <clears throat> the question still remains, is that actually what we are doing? In order for us to do that, we need to know who God is and who we are. Abraham Kuyper has been quoted as saying this, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. Your life is all his. Every second, every decision, every thought, it's all his. That's who God is. Do you recognize who you are? J.I. Packard said this, those who are the weakest lean the hardest on God. Do you recognize your weakness this morning? It's a good place to be. It's a good place to be when you recognize that you can't do it anymore. When you recognize that your, your strength is gone, long gone. And you lean in. You lean in the one who is strong, whose strength will never end. As the psalmist says, you commit your ways to the Lord. Trust him and he will act. In what ways today do you need to trust the Lord? With your family, your children, or your parents, with your work, with your finances, with your, your future and its uncertainties, with control of relationships, with grief and sorrow and loss, with a wayward heart or a bad attitude, with, with a, a thought life of, of, of impurities or, or sinful habits, what way do you need to surrender control, full, unyielding confidence in God? How would that change your life? This is a God who's worthy of that trust. It's because of who he is. First, first Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he cares. Cast, your, cast all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares. This is a God who actually cares for you. He hasn't just left you here. He cares for you. He wants good for you. And he's done good for you through Jesus. Placing our trust in the Lord is as certain as the rising of the sun, the blossom of spring, and the colors of autumn. There are no risks. There is no risk in trusting God. There isn't. If you know who he is, you can't, he, he, he is absolutely dependable. That doesn't mean it's always going to go your way. 
But a God with perfect character is a God that you can trust. Now, some of you might be sitting here today and saying, that, that sounds really good. All that's true. But the truth is, man, I'm on the struggle bus. Like there is a moment where I'm, I'm in, in acts of belief and then unbelief. I am faithful, then I feel faithless. I'm trusting, then I'm doubting. We're, we're a walking contradiction. Welcome to the club, right? No one is perfect here. No one has this nailed. It is a struggle. If you're saying that this morning, let me say one thing. Thank God for Jesus. If you're feeling that struggle, here's what you can know. You can know that there's a God who, who holds you in his hand. You are completely secure in him. God is not doubting your salvation this morning because you're doubting it. You know that, right? God is not somehow uncertain about your, your condition because you're uncertain about it. That's not how it works. God knows. Jesus not only saves us, he keeps us. Jesus not only saves us, he's saving us. If you're looking to yourself for security, man, rough days for you, friend. I got good news. I got good news. There's one who holds you in the palm of his hand. So yes, we struggle to trust God with all our heart. And many of us would say, that's me. Well, here's the good news for you. God does call you to trust him with, with your whole heart. That's absolutely true as well. But what's also true is that, that we are sinners, we are selfish, and we struggle. And here's the good news. Even though, and even while we were sinners, Christ did trust God. Christ trusted God fully, full-hearted trust in God, all the way to his death, which was for me and you. He perfectly did what you and I could not do. His act of righteousness is now, for those who believe, on our account. We are seen now as righteous through the eyes of God. So because he moved first, because he acted in a way we couldn't, now we can respond re repentance and faith. And then, enabled by his spirit, we can trust him. You can walk in faith. You can. Why? Not because you're somehow some great Christian or you're really strong. No, no, no. The spirit enables. The spirit enables us to do just that. So maybe you're here today and you're battling and friend, I just want to invite you to Jesus this morning. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Jesus is the one you need. Come to him. Come to him. You may say, but man, you don't know my life. You don't know what, what I've gone through. You don't know the struggles. You don't know the doubts. You don't know the questions. Listen, doubt is not the enemy of faith. It's the doorway. If you stay in your unbelief, yes. But if you take those doubts to the right place, it's a starting point, not an ending point. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. God actually invites you in. He calls you not to clean yourself up for him. He does that. He calls you to come. Come through faith in his son. So will you trust him? Will you trust him with all your heart? Will you not lean on your own understandings? Will you acknowledge him in all your ways? There's good news for you that for those, Jesus makes a straight path. Let's pray. Father, there are those with us this morning who may be struggling, may be searching, may be uncertain. God, I pray they would look to Christ today. 
I pray that they would, they would claim, they would see who Jesus claims to be, the way, the truth, and life. They would see you, God, as a guide, our teacher. God, pray they would respond this morning to the good news about Jesus and to trust him with all their heart. For those that know you today, God, I pray that they would see their need for Jesus even now. Certainly in salvation, but every day. God, there are areas in our life, each one of us, if we're honest, we're struggling with to trust you the way we ought to. So God, this morning, I would ask that you would help us to identify those things. Your spirit would help us identify those things. That would we, we would humbly this morning confess those things to you and ask for the grace to trust you. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together.